This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by CardsDirect.com. With over 5,000 cards to choose from, you can design the perfect holiday card with CardsDirect.com. The holidays are just a few weeks away, so create your cards today and save 25% at checkout when you visit CardsDirect.com America. Also, if you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting AMERICA to 31996. That's AMERICA to 31996. Podcast for America is also brought to you by Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor from Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dark dramas, and tune into Spotless Saturdays at 10 p.m., 9 central, on Esquire Network. I'm Ezra Klein, host of the new Vox podcast, The Weeds. Every week I'm joined by Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias for a podcast for people who follow politics because they care about and love policy. We talk about healthcare, about economics, about the future of work. We get very nerdy. We get very into the weeds. In a way, you won't hear anywhere else. So subscribe to The Weeds now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash Panoply and join us for a discussion about what's really important in politics. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the fear, loathing, and tenuous reasoning that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC. Joining me from our Washington, D.C. studios is Mark Leibovich of The New York Times Magazine and Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. Why am I saying Annie's name like I'm surprised? Annie Lowry, <laughs> contributing editor with New York Magazine. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi. We have a big show today. There's been a lot that's happened in the course of the last week. After the Paris attacks, the election has, in the minds of some, become a whole other ball game. We will look at the way terrorism might shape the presidential race and what it means for Donald Trump and Ben Carson, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, and the Democratic candidates. Speaking of the Democrats, their latest debate was just a few days ago. Did Bernie Sanders actually maybe have a point here? Climate change is directly related to the growth of terrorism. And if we do not get our act together and listen to what the scientists say, you're going to see countries all over the world. This is what the CIA says. They're going to be struggling over limited amounts of water, limited amounts of land to grow their crops. And you're going to see all kinds of international conflict. But of course, international terrorism is a major issue that we have got to address today. Or maybe Bernie was making a point that nobody in this present moment can possibly wrap their heads around. Did Hillary slip up by reinforcing her credentials on Wall Street and tying them to 9-11? And what does this all mean in the big scheme of things? Could Donald Trump end up being the nominee? What does that mean for the race? And moreover, what does it mean for Republican establishment conventional wisdom spouting voters? Are they going to just plug their nose and vote for Hillary? All that and a little segment we like to call If I Were in Charge. Okay, let's get to the getting. Of course, by now you probably know the two outsider candidates, Donald Trump and Ben Carson, have dominated polls and headlines, including a poll this week out that shows them to be the first and second choice of likely Republican voters. But 
they have approximately zero experience in foreign policy. That, however, has not stopped Donald Trump from laying out a decidedly Trumpian plan of action. Here's what he said this week on Morning Joe. They will go in and shut down mosques. There's talk about that in many places. Donald Trump, the French are talking about that. Is that something that uh, you would consider doing uh, as 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 president? Well, I would I would hate to do it, but it's something that you're going to have to strongly consider because some of the ideas and, and some of the hatred, the absolute hatred is coming from these areas. And, you know, in New York City, as an example, we had a group of people, from what I understand, that really knew what they were doing, that were really studying the situation, and they're not doing that anymore. And with under the new mayor, they're not doing that anymore. And I think that's a mistake. So it's, some, it's something that many people, not me, it's something that many people are considering and many people are going to do. Okay, Mark and Annie, Donald Trump suggesting that the a the president can shut down mosques and b just the the merits of the idea as fantastical and unconstitutional as it is your thoughts there are two possible outcomes in the paris attacks on the presidential campaign now obviously the the primary outcome was an utter you know tragedy and much loss of life and just an awful situation and beyond that you know a, a big shakeup to the geopolitical situation but there's some conventional wisdom that says that this will be the wake-up call that finally gets people to take the presidential candidates more seriously. It'll be a more intelligent and urgent conversation. And then there is another conventional wisdom, you know, which is 180 degrees different, which is, oh, well, people will immediately, you know, run to lowest common denominators, go for cheap, easy, uh, yeah, yeah, macho solutions, like, say, shutting down the mosques that aren't particularly serious or realistic. And the candidates who can do that most effectively, <clears throat> Donald Trump, will benefit, I mean, immediately. So, I mean, I think you can go both ways with this. I mean, I my personal hope as a citizen is that it will signal an end to the enter- entertainment portion of this campaign and, and maybe inspire a more thoughtful debate. But I, I'm not generally that optimistic. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's kind of interesting, I was looking some polling on this today, is that, you know, I don't know, in the, in the wake of Paris, which was obviously a really awful incident and one that I think for a lot of Americans felt like it could have happened here, right? You know, a lot of Americans have been to France. feels a lot closer than Beirut does, even if, you know, the loss of life everywhere is deplorable. It's kind of this question, right? Like, if you're a candidate saying that you're going to shut down the mosques, it can't happen. And also maybe that sounds kind of good. The American public remains kind of skeptical of intervening in the Middle East and thinks that since Afghanistan and Iraq started in 2001 and 2003, that perhaps we should be less involved, not more. Uh, Maybe we should just be dropping bombs and not sending boots on the ground. So I think that that's going to be interesting to watch people navigate that. Um, Because I don't think that there's any will for like the United States invading Syria and Iraq again. I mean, but I I don't know. Maybe maybe that's different today than it was a week ago. I mean, to your point, Mark, about whether this race becomes more substantive and less circus-like, I agree that the sort of the carnage and the heartbreak of Paris would seem to lend to a more serious discussion of policy and where these folks want to take the country. At the same time, you know, days after you have Ben Carson saying we should stop admitting all people from the Middle East altogether into the United States, Cruz saying that we can take Christian refugees, but not Muslim refugees. I mean, these are 
entirely unserious. I mean, even if even if for some reason you believe that Ted Cruz's strategy was right, how would you tell if people were truly Christians or Muslims when you let them in? I mean, there's no vetting process for Syrian refugees on in terms of like true religious belief. These are unserious proposals from people who I think think that there's an appetite for them. Somehow this is teed up this latent xenophobia in a way that's really distressing. And I, I think, Annie, to your point about, you know, the appetite for boots on the ground, it feels kind of inevitable that at some point we're going to end up with ground troops in Syria. Just I because... I have no idea, you know? I mean, I, I guess it's like, where does where does ISIS end? And everyone says there's just inevitably going to be something that happens in the U.S. homeland. Right. I, I certainly hope not. It was So I was in Greece a couple of weeks ago sort of watching this flow of refugees who literally show up soaking wet on the shore. And the Greek government was in charge of sort of determining which ones were Syrians and which ones weren't, because Europe has thus thus far said that it would be much more accepting to the Syrians than it would to anybody else. And the way that they were kind of litmus testing people to see if they were Syrian, let alone Muslim or Christian or anything else, was they were like showing them a photo of the ruins at Palmyra and saying, is this, what is this? Wow. Like that, that was that's our vetting process. That was the vetting process. And there were thousands and thousands of people showing up on the shore every day. And if Europe makes this harder, it makes the process more militarized. It forces these people into camps, which they've repeatedly said they don't want to do. They're just going to find other ways to go around whatever roadblocks are set up. These are people who are fleeing for their lives. That was at least the way that it was portrayed to me by the aid workers on the ground is, you know, if you put up a bunch of fences and you put these people, you know, in concertina wire, they're just going to try and figure out some way to circumvent it and get to France or Germany or whatever. So and and what's weird is that coming into the United States, they have been so carefully vetting the Syrians that were coming in that the process is hugely backlogged. And we're not even taking as many people as we said we would because they so fear something like this. You know, right. one guy gets in on their watch. It's just the whole thing. is a, It was a cluster before this happened. And if there's any silver lining, which, you know, there isn't, it's that I think the world is now focusing on the cluster that is happening in Europe and has been ongoing. Because, like, for a long time, Americans just didn't really care that there was a refugee crisis in Europe. And, you know, they also, to a certain extent, you know, the whole Syria thing felt really distant from them, too. Yeah, I still don't think that Americans or a large portion of Americans particularly care about the refugee crisis. Yeah, that might be right. I think they care about this not happening to them. I mean, not to be so... You know, cynical. Yeah, here, I think but, that's exactly. But, right. That's why Paris has real resonance. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you know, remember, like what ten years ago, like there was some stupid house ordinance that we could no longer say French fries. Like they were called Freedom Fries. Yeah. Yes. So now you know we're all France again. Yeah. No. I mean, look. I mean, you have Donald Trump talking about a deportation army or something. I mean, I, I mean, maybe this will focus the immigration debate on you know, a more Middle Eastern, European kind of immigration rather than a southern border, which is, you know, not really the point. But the fact is, you know, there's a very, very visceral side of this electorate that becomes even more visceral after something like this happens. And I don't think the Republicans have a monopoly on it, but I think that this is what we want our leaders traditionally to do. I mean, there is, there's a, a helplessness, a desperation. And again, I mean, someone who is demagogic and opportunistic and good at getting attention, you know, again, someone like Donald Trump is, you know, unfortunately very well positioned to meet this moment, not with seriousness, but with demagoguery, which is, you know, frankly, a much easier, you know, much easier message to grasp if you're a primary voter. Yeah, wait, so yeah. I, I, I think that actually, if I understand what you're saying, Mark, it's that 
Donald Trump might be kind of like one of the people who, pol- in policy terms, comes out ahead. I don't know about policy terms, but maybe politics terms. Yeah, I mean, look, but, I mean, but like among Republican primary voters. Because I think that there's now like a little bit of CW, like, oh, the adults in the room will, right. will come forward and yeah. will, will reign supreme. And the people who seem like you would really want them to have their hands on the nuclear football. Isn't that what right. it's called? Uh, nuclear football, <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, but the CW... I'm like, that sounds wrong, but the, nevertheless. No, but the CW, like we've learned time and time again, especially in this election, doesn't really matter. I yeah, mean, it's crap. The, well, well, but this this calcifies each side. Yes, For, yeah. for the does. people who were fearful very good, very well and xenophobic and whatever else, the nativists who were effectively voting right. and supporting Donald Trump and Ben Carson because they were terrified of like what lay ahead, this just... Double down, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is totally. going to make them probably even more strident in their beliefs that that someone like Donald Trump is who we need. And for the people, the establishment, those espousing the conventional wisdom who felt like those guys were clowns and what we need is a serious leader, these times further cement that belief. But I, I guess so maybe the schism becomes even deeper in the Republican Party. But I, I guess I wonder what you guys think it does to the Democratic side, because in a way, I think whoever they, the, the Republicans nominate, I, I feel like this ultimately does benefit Hillary Clinton. I think it yeah, absolutely I think so does. Too. I mean, I don't think Bernie Sanders was going to get the nomination anyway. I don't think this helps or hurts him. I think it only helps Hillary Clinton. If you watch that debate the other night, and, and I did it, I mean, she was the grown-up. I mean, she was someone you could actually imagine in a situation like this. I mean, her command of, of these issues and these places and these people, you know, are clearly a cut above everyone else in, in both parties. And I don't see how that couldn't you know, help her. And again, in these visceral times, no one pays attention that much to the sort of symbolic problems that she has and you know, the actual problems she has as a candidate. I mean, everyone has has flaws. Right. And I kind of wonder if it doesn't also, I mean, and again, I don't know that this will change anybody's mind, but take away a little bit from like the Benghazi sideshow. This woman has been a diplomat for a very long time, was highly respected as one. She's known as like, frankly, a little bit more hawkish than a lot of members of the Democratic Party were. So in an environment where everybody feels a little less secure, maybe that's not a bad thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm with Mark. I just, I don't see how this helps anybody but her. Can I say, though, I feel like I have to defend this comment that Bernie made, that mm-hmm. a huge part of the instability in the Mideast is related to climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, folks have not had the agricultural yields. There's been a drought. People have been economically disenfranchised by the conditions. And r- rebellion is in part an expression of that. However, I don't think the the nuance sort of deep thought point really was communicated all that well and, and received, especially not received well by the audience. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's kind of an academic argument to be making right now. Right. Yes. Like it might be true that that's almost certainly true. That's in like the two week later scale. argument. Yeah. But it's not like in the immediate, you know, where you have a bunch of what appear to be French and Belgian guys who did this. Mm. Belgians. Belgians. Wow. Belgians. Belgians. We're not going to be calling them Belgian waffles. <laughs> yeah. Stick to waffles, oh, goodness. But, but, you know, I do want to, they're, they're beyond Trump and Carson. Yeah. So we've talked about the insurgent candidates, but in terms of the conventional wisdom and the establishment, everybody's been talking about Marco Rubio. And not for the last few days. I mean, well, he, but Marco Rubio young. did the Sunday shows and is touting yeah. his Senate foreign intelligence bona fides. And mm-hmm. is, and then Jeb Bush is trying to capitalize on it as well, given his executive experience. And I guess I wonder if you guys think 
Polling shows, I mean, this is polling done before the Paris attacks, and that's right. an important yeah. caveat. In the two-man race between Jeb and, and Marco, I guess we should throw Ted Cruz in there yeah. since he's a sitting senator. Right. I mean, does anybody get a deeper look precisely because of the issue of national security that's now going to be front and center? Cruz actually, I mean, this might be just conventional wisdom, but he does sort of marry Tea Party Hellraiser with at least an illusion of gravitas. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. maybe he circles that square a little better than Rubio does because he doesn't just look as young. Now, I actually think this probably will help Jeb more than the others. I mean, if nothing else, because he does present more as a grown-up, although I, I think it's going to take a lot more than a second, third, fourth, or fifth look to to save Jeb at this point. I will say this, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but oh, the more we the more we talk about this cleave between the circus and the the CW, mm-hmm. the more I'm like, oh my God, is Ted Cruz going to be the nominee? If only because he will benefit from the Trump and Carson base, the fact that they're powerful this election cycle, and the fact that he's a sitting senator. Never mind the fact that he's like repeatedly tried to shut down the government, but that will maybe make the establishment feel a little bit better if he's the guy they have to plug their nose and support. You know, I if, don't know if if it is. I mean, first of all, the Republicans are going to lose like f- at least forty states. I mean, it, really. I mean, there's just. I mean, that's going to be an absolute slaughter. I'd be shocked if it wasn't. I think Rubio and Jeb. I think unlike the Carson Trump ticket. Carson Trump probably <laughs> the same. No, no, absolutely. Depending on the degree to which Trump sort of self funds. No, I, I think that they would all be general election disasters. I mean, again, that's this is all conventional wisdom. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think though that Rubio. I guess about a week ago, at least, was was being talked about as again someone who could potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, gain credibility with both of those wings. And I just, you know, I don't know if he can continue that in this environment. Well, I'm, no, I'm interested in seeing polls, though, after yeah. after Paris yeah. and also after Bo- Donald Trump's, like, 95-minute, mm-hmm. um, what was it, a meltdown? Anti-Carson screed. Whatever it was in, in Iowa the other day was just must-see. Um, I don't know if it was on TV, but... Can I just take yeah. a moment to opine about how completely fucked up it is that Donald Trump is talking about closing mosques? <laughs> I mean, I just feel yeah. like for the right that has been so adamant about religious freedoms, it's yeah. like, oh, we're going to find the radical mosques and close them. It's just like the the double standard is like it is mind boggling. Yeah. And I think it again exposes that, like, I'm not sure that's an unpopular position. No, oh, I, I, right? absolutely. Like, at all. I mean, it, and it just it, it does. Yes. He has repeatedly exposed the uncomfortable xenophobia of like a large proportion of the space. There's nothing uncomfortable about it if you are amidst it. Well, I mean, and, yeah. and beyond the xenophobia, it's like, it, it, I, and I think for a lot of people who share those values, Annie, it's uncomfortable, but it's yeah. also ter- a terrible idea if you want to actually combat radical extremism, which is like you will further inflame an already pretty fired up group of terrorists yeah. if you start closing mosques in the same way that you, I mean, like all of this feeds directly into the desire on the part of ISIS to create the end time scenario, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like refugees are being targeted. We get increasingly xenophobic, increasingly punitive with the Muslim population that we have in the U.S. We further marginalize them. Mm-hmm. They become further further radicalized. And it's like, this is how it starts. Like, yeah. and it's, even I'm... if you have no moral issues with doing that or yeah constitutional ones. And this is bad policy. I'm so afraid of what is going to happen in Europe, right? Because they're going to have like a million of these refugees who are going to stay there and they're going to be marginalized and they're not going to integrate and it's going to be like a complete disaster. I'm I'm actually curious to know what you guys think. Will this 
in any way reopen the privacy debate a little bit? Will this give yes. urgency to to a thousand percent? Yes, to you know the efficacy of gathering data, various yeah. eavesdropping, wiretap. Um, well, especially because Apple recently created an encryption system by which they, you know, the U.S. government no longer has a backdoor mm-hmm. to communications. And there's a big question about how these terrorists communicated. And they were apparently right. using some form of communication that was encrypted that didn't allow monitoring. So right. I, I think we're right back post Snowden in that right. debate yeah. oh, with with renewed urgency. Although I kind of wonder if because this happened in Europe, there's always this sense of, well, you can't do that to us Americans. You know, the fact that it's still happening internationally I'm not sure how much it's it's going to rebound on the debate here. Okay, we need to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, but we will be right back. I know as a reporter who's constantly on the road, keeping track of your miles is one of the last things that you want to be thinking about, one of the last pieces of paper that you want to fill out. I can't tell you how many times I've driven hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles and maybe filed for my rental car, but never actually filed for my miles. MileIQ is the number one mileage tracker app. More than a million Americans trust MileIQ to automatically log their drives every day. It's the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. It's incredibly easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. The average user logs $547 a month in drives. That's $6,000 a year in miles you could be claiming and probably more than you're claiming right now. MileIQ has a five-star rating in Google Play and the iTunes app stores. Stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money that you should be redeeming. Get all those pennies back for all those miles you're driving. Let the app do the work while you focus on what's really important. You can try MileIQ for free right now by texting AMERICA to 31996. Standard messaging and data rates apply. Simply text AMERICA to 31996 to download the Amile IQ app and to start your free trial right away. And we're back. And we are moving on to Hillary Clinton and what she had to say at the latest Democratic debate. To some, Hillary's pointed defense, her shouty, shouty defense when it came to helping Wall Street rebuild after 9-11 may not have been her shrewdest move this campaign cycle. Hillary somehow sort of suggests that her, you know, effort to help Wall Street rebuild and whatever rebuild means in this context was a rebuke to the Islamic fundamentalists who leveled the World Trade Center. Right. So this was, I mean, this was like kind of a nonsense response, right? On the one hand, I feel bad that she's being dinged for like the fact that a lot of like the Goldman Sachs is the world were not actually based in Wall Street at the time. Like, who cares about that? Um, and it was true that like there was this kind of financial panic after 9-11. You know, this recession happened, which we sort of like forget about. And But the actual point that she's saying that like Wall Street's support of her stems from 9-11 is like... I mean, strikes me as being bizarre. I thought that she had a valid answer if she were going to be very literal. I think if she had prefaced everything she said by by saying, Bernie, I hear your point. I cannot be bought. They will get nothing in return. Anyone who supported me, anyone who knows me, knows that they're not getting anything for the support except for being able to support the candidate of their choice. Now, that would be disingenuous in, in the classic tradition of politicians being disingenuous. But I also think that she, you know, she did have a literal point to make. I mean, she was physically there. I mean, there were a lot of her constituents who were having major, major hardship and loss of property and loss of life and loss of people who they knew. And and so, yeah, I mean, that's that I think is a legitimate pivot. But I think what the problem is, she 
she took it the step farther in saying, that's why Wall Street supports me. I mean, I think, you know, there's an easy kind of way to kind of not duck the question, but to sort of make the literal point without actually saying, you know, trying to like be chest thumpy about this. I I also feel like as someone who lived in New York for 9-11, there has been so much mining of 9-11 as this kind of untouchable cone that you can wear as a politician that shields you from outside criticism. And it seemed really kind of craven to maybe try and address the Wall Street ties by invoking 9-11. Like, and, and look, I think, you know, Hillary Clinton was a senator from New York at the time. She has every reason to tout her work on behalf of the state and residents in the wake of 9-11. But as part of an answer about her ties to Wall Street, that just seemed incredibly opportunistic to me. More broadly, do you think that this speaks to a kind of weakness of hers where sometimes she gets like a little bit under pressure and just says this sort of like bizarre stuff? Not that I think it matters, but I think there's been like a couple incidents like these where she sort of panics and I don't know. Yeah, yeah my feeling is any presidential candidate who, ha- you know, gets maybe about maybe five dozen of these in the course of a campaign. I'm thinking 60 if I w- of them. You know what? That's just so many. I mean, you can, if I were a candidate, I would fuck up every single day. Yeah. And, and we and wish you would be a candidate. I wish yeah. I could be a candidate too, but I just can't be. It, it's, um, I have so much to juggle, you know? I mean, think about it. If, if like any one of us were any one of those three debaters or however many debaters were in the Republican field last week, who was able to deliver all those lines and say all those things. I mean, I would be like on cloud fucking nine. I'm like, wow, I sounded like good and I presented myself and I didn't like stammer and like vomit on the stage and like, <laughs> you know, do all the things that human beings do. And and then all of a sudden, you know, because all these like 20 something reporters are going to say, oh, no, but she stumbled here and stumbled that. And it was a bad night for Bernie. Because well, Bernie is this a this. rare moment of empathy from Mark Leibovich? It, it, uh, I'm a very empathetic person. No, I just think I think that we have to, as members of the media, acknowledge that the media sucks. Well, and, and okay, I, mean, I don't. I I generally love self-loathing, of, but come on, dude. She she's like talking about yeah. 9/11 and rebuking the terrorists Fine, and Wall Street. It was, like it was just like a crazy word jumble that like. Yeah. And I feel like it's in that cabinet, like that category of things along with like military service, right? Like you can lie about a bunch of stuff, but you cannot lie about military service. You can like lie about a bunch of things, but like 9-11 is kind of... But but seriously, Alex, you were making a point though. I mean, is there a place for self-loathing in a democratic media environment? Of course. What's interesting is if you hear her voice in that moment, she's really keyed up. She's doing the shouty, shouty thing, as Glenn Thrush points out. She's mounting the defense of her Wall Street ties, which I think this gives you an insight into her feeling vulnerable about that, right? Like, especially because Sanders and his his crew have been pounding this relentlessly, right? So she's defensive about that. And she also clearly feels impassioned about 9-11 and what she did to keep the country safe. Keep in mind that this debate was the day after the Paris attacks and feels very strongly about her, her sort of abilities to shepherd the country through difficult times. And she just happened to combine those two passions, I think, in a really misguided moment. Have you guys watched any of this um, Aziz Ansari show, the new Netflix thing? I tried to start watching it. I fell asleep. Uh, there's one where he and like he's he, they're looking for a sitcom for three people, but they only have room for one Indian American. Oh. And his like good Indian American friend. I don't know. The question is, can there be two or three or one podcaster um, in in our collective I don't know. This is, I have no idea where I'm going with this. I need more coffee. That's why you can't my, be a candidate. I'm just going to slurp. See, we're going we're, we're to take a, a short break, Mark, Thank so you, that Mark. you can collect your thoughts mm. and mainline some more caffeine. Um, that was 
excellent sound effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So stay with us while we hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets from the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against the backdrop of Jean's niche crime scene cleaning business, with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Jean, Martin, and their dysfunctional families struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Watch Spotless at 10, 9 central on Esquire Network. Deck the halls this year with custom holiday cards from Cardstrack.com. Whether it's for your family or business, Cardstrack.com has you covered with traditional and corporate cards and a variety of unique printing formats. You can add a photo, logo, or custom message, and with over 5,000 cards to choose from, you're sure to create the perfect holiday card. Plus, with express shipping, they'll be here quick, like the holidays themselves. Podcast for America listeners will save an extra 25% off at cardsdirect.com America. Don't wait. Christmas is only five weeks away. Visit cardsdirect.com America. We are back. Hillary Clinton is the likely Democratic nominee. But really, truly, all of this considered... What of the Republicans? There was, and maybe there continues to be, some panic in the establishment, some legitimate panic in the media, that Donald Trump may actually end up being the candidate of the grand old party. Annie, what happens? First of all, I think that Hillary Clinton might die laughing. That Look, like we have talked every podcast for like the past six months about how this shit has to fall apart at some point. And it hasn't. And so when you actually are faced with the electoral tests of going to these states and and rallying votes, you know, I don't know how this is going to pan out for him. Taking away your your personal opinions about this, I think that this has caused the media in D.C. to actually sort of step back and say, like, wait, like, what are we actually doing here? Who are we covering? What is this, like, you know, what kind of prejudices are we taking in here? Because we're doing a terrible job covering this because of it. And the candidates are, like, feeding off of it about how bad the media is because they keep on getting this wrong. Look, Trump's been like number one or number two now for what, four or five months? I mean, yeah, the guy has a long time. I hate to use this term, but he has staying power. He's here. He's queer. Get used to him. Um, <laughs> that's a lowercase Q. Yeah, that's figurative. Look, I mean, I don't know why people keep saying even to this day, he can't win. He can't win. He can't win. I mean, he has been rewarded every single time he has supposedly stepped in it. He has supposedly um, acted unpresidential. And Sure. And, you know, he hasn't spent any money yet. So I I want to know what establishment Republicans do if they are offered a choice of either Cruz, Trump, Carson or Hillary Clinton. Do they vote for someone like Trump or Carson or Cruz or do they stay home or do they vote for Hillary Clinton? Because I think the Bill Crystals of the world and the Wall Street Journal opinion page, I kind of think you're going to have to vote for Hillary Clinton at that point. Yeah, I think you I could, could be stay wrong. home, but that's a great question. I love that question. I mean, I wish you could. I wish there were a way to poll honestly these people because then it'll give you a real window into how much of their rhetoric is just bombast about Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and how much of it yeah. is actually grounded in you know some sort of assessment of what she would be like in office versus you know some of their guys would be in, in office of the three. Let's say Carson. Okay? Yeah, Carson Hillary. Okay, you are a 
you know, rock ribbed, mainstreamish Republican have been your entire life. Yep. You're not crazy. Yeah. You um, just want lower taxes. You just want lower taxes. You know, maybe you're pro life. I would say most of the voters who would vote for Ben Carson, I, I would assume he would get maybe 70% of the Romney voters, maybe 20. Five percent would stay home, and you know maybe five or ten percent would would pull the lever for Hillary. I mean, that which really is you think that few? I don't know. I, I kind of I envision this like crazy upside down world where the Wall Street Journal writes this kind of elegiac op-ed that's like right. we are forced to cast our vote. To, to, it could happen. Forced yeah, it to could you happen. know throw our support behind Hillary Clinton for this unserious representative from the you know blah blah blah. I yeah. just I can imagine it up is totally down and down happen. is up. Yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna like throw the world of Republican staffers into complete disarray, <laughs> right? Because right. like you're some policy guy, are you really gonna go work on the Carson campaign. Do you think that there's any chance that at some point there's just like a like a like a draft Romney campaign? Like get somebody in here with a big name recognition. Um, Mike Bloomberg, independent run. Yeah. When does oh, he God. have to declare? By I don't know, man. That that could only help Hillary, right? Yeah, I don't think ru- so. I, I think feel like that hurts Hillary. That could hurt Hillary. Really? There's a lot of the same voters there. Yeah, I, I mean, guess Wall so Street, with him. Wall Street. The Wall Street suburban, thing comes back. Yeah. yeah no. I think Hillary Clinton, no matter who the Republicans nominate, will probably run a fairly centrist campaign as opposed to this very, very you know liberal populist rhetoric she's been using to sort of, um, you know, in the last few months. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is, does she incite a third party Bernie Sanders like, you know, person on the left to get into the race, which could be a real problem for her. And then yeah. you know, maybe you then maybe that's how you get elected if you're Donald Trump. Yeah. One thing that I think I've been thinking about recently and that I think is kind of interesting, even despite the last jobs report, there's like some signs of softening, real softening in the U.S. economy. If the economy turns south, I think it gets really hard for her. The ideal situation for her in some sense is one in which there's a foreign policy focus where she can project strength and the economy is good. So people aren't really thinking about it as much. Yeah. And it depends on if anything happens here. Yeah. On U.S. soil. And, of course, who the Republicans nominate. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, of course. The um, clown car is still in motion. Who on earth oh. will they nominate? I just have no idea. <laughs> you, Mark I'm Lunevich. not going to happen. Not going to happen. Draft I'm not a Lebo. Okay. So now it is time for If I Were in Charge. Mark, if you were in charge, what would you be doing at this moment? Issuing suspensions to all journalists who, right after debates, declare lists of winners and losers. Who are they to tell us who won and who lost? I mean, Politico had this huge headline uh, the other night saying, a bad night for Bernie, whatever. Maybe this is just a larger rabbinical issue for me. Annie, do you have any rabbinical issues that you want to discuss? Yeah, so I I have been off Twitter for a while, and it's really, really delightful. And it's made me really, really annoyed with Twitter scolds, right? People who are like, oh, and you took a hot take and put it on Twitter in light of a tragedy. And it's like, you know what? I'm not going to get exercised about that. You're the one who's on Twitter. It's provocative medium. Leave people alone. Nobody cares. People are stupid all the time. Vegans off Twitter. Vegans off Twitter. This is a real cleanse you're doing, Annie. Yeah. I'm going to become, yeah, I'm going to, next time I'm going to be recording from Esalen. It sounds like you are already. Listen to that. Yeah. That's great. I love Esalen. Super have you been to Esalen? Zen. I have. I've been to the night baths. It's really fun. I've been fun. to the night baths Whoa. many, many times. Much. This is. You know that Modern Family episode where, um, 
Claire and um, with Phil, Claire and Phil um, accidentally, they go to a romantic hot tub somewhere in Palm Springs, and it turns out that there were a bunch of nudists there celebrating yes. Nude Year's Eve. Yeah, oh, and, that's um, wonderful. It's a great scene. Anyway. What's amazing about Leibovich is that every podcast, we somehow manage to work in, like, nudity, yeah. um, oh. um, hot tubs. No. And th- that's why if I were in charge, Mark Leibovich would be running for president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. the, the And more journalists <laughs> would run for president because then Mark to your your point, they could get a little taste of their own medicine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is but you know, I have another if I were in charge because when I was at Esalen, it was a bunch of old crunchy hippies who I feel a lot of affinity with. And then there were bros. And I was like, oh, that's get sweet. the hell out of here, guys. Bros are banned from Esalen. We I don't even know what Esalen is, Esalen you guys. Esalen is a, what is it? It's like We got to go on a retreat together. We should have a podcast for America. So you know the very Esalen. end. No, we should broadcast of, live from Esalen. Yeah. You know the very end of Mad Men when he's at that kind of like yeah, place? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's Esalen. <sighs> Let's go. Yeah. On that upbeat spiritual mm. note, I wish we had a little bell to ring just like at the end of Mad Men. AC, uh, can you get a bell? The, <laughs> yes. Good. AC, I want your voice in this episode. AC's voice is in the episode. Did you just hear? This happens on like nearly every podcast. What? He's just got got that special something. We want to to involve you. AC Valdez, great segue, by the way, my friend, is one of the main producers of this show. And we thank him for his hard work, his service, and his positive vibrations to put a bow on this one. That is all for Podcasts for America. Thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. We have been getting your amazing listener art, and it has rocked our world. You guys know who you are. We're going to open a gallery and put all of it in it, so keep that coming. And please tell your friends about us. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And do not forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this show. And who else, Mark? And themselves. And themselves. Mm -hmm. For Andy Lowry and Mark Leibovich, I'm Alex Wagner in New York. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.